0: This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them. One from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network.
1: Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen to us today on our show, Coast to Coast. Uh, It is October 27th. I'm Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts.
2: And I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court.
1: Bob? And I write a blog called Law Sites and also a second blog called Media Law, both of which are at LegalLine.com.
2: And last week's show on the new bankruptcy law is up on the Legal Talk Network, Uh, a very interesting discussion uh, with the gentleman who wrote uh, Collier on bankruptcy and one local practitioner about some of the uh, significant changes in the law and and some of the significant consequences. But we're talking today about lawyers, guns, and money. Uh, Earlier this week, President Bush signed the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, passed by Congress which will shield gun makers from crime victim lawsuits. Uh, Not only is it going to bar future lawsuits against gun manufacturers by victims of crime, it will require several pending suits to be dismissed. As I understand it, the new law has and still is the subject of a lot of controversy on a number of levels, not just on the issue of gun control, but tort reform as well.
1: Opponents of this shield law... and. Gun control advocates think the new bill goes too far, taking away crime victims' rights to seek justice and uh, therefore not holding manufacturers responsible in situations such as the uh, Washington, D.C. sniper shootings in 2002.
2: Well, Bob, I think supporters are saying the law is going to protect firearm makers and sellers from the financial disaster that massive damages would bring, and contend it's really not the gun maker, but it's the criminal who needs to be the target. They hope that it's going to stabilize liability insurance rates, but before we talk it all out, I
1: think we need to get to our guests. Well, let me introduce our first guest today is Joshua Horwitz. Joshua is Executive Director of the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence and the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence an organization at the forefront of the gun violence prevention movement. Mr. Horwitz has focused the organization's efforts on closing illegal firearms markets by eliminating unregulated transfers of firearms and pursuing litigation against the gun industry. He's a lawyer with a background in torts and civil rights who's recognized as an expert on firearm litigation, And uh, in addition, he's developed a unique database of cases and court documents uh, that uh, assist uh, in efforts to uh, 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 reform the firearms industry. Josh is joining us from Washington, D.C. Welcome to the program, Joshua.
3: Thanks for having me. I really
1: appreciate it. And next,
2: we'd like to introduce David Kopel. David is also a lawyer, and he's the research director of the Independence Institute, associate policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and editor-in-chief of the Journal on Firearms and Public Policy. He's also a contributing editor to several publications, including Liberty Magazine, Gun Week, and the Firearms and Outdoor Trade. David is the former Assistant Attorney General, State of Colorado, and is an expert on firearms policy, juvenile crime, drug policy, criminal sentencing, and environmental law. Just so that he's broad on everything. The Independence Institute was founded, I believe, in 1985. is a nonpartisan, nonprofit public research organization.
1: Thanks for joining us, David, from Colorado. Thank you for having me. And finally, we would like to welcome uh, a man who needs no introduction in the blogosphere. Uh, Professor Eugene Volokh, who uh, writes the, uh, uh, among the cast of characters who write the well-known Volokh conspiracy, Professor Volokh teaches constitutional law, copyright, firearms regulation, and the law of government and religion at UCLA School of Law. He's nationally recognized expert on the First Amendment, cyberspace law, harassment law, and gun control. Uh, welcome to the show, Professor Great Volick. pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, David Couple, I wonder if I could start with you and ask, uh, this law is, is seen as a victory for the NRA, uh, which lobbied extensively uh, on its behalf. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, why this law was pursued and why it's important law?
4: The, the reason why the, the federal government acted was we've had 34 states already enact laws similar to this um, at the state level. But, obviously, there were 16 states that hadn't. And even though I think the proper approach for Congress in general is to be deferential uh, to states' rights issues, one of the reasons Congress was granted authority to regulate commerce among the several states, the interstate commerce power, is to deal with states that tried to put up barriers to interstate commerce or to exercise extraterritorial effects. What these lawsuits were was not mainly by people who had been injured by guns, You know, those suits have been going on for a long time, and if that's all that was involved, Congress never would have stepped in. What happened was you had, honestly, I would say corrupt mayors, like Mark Moriel of New Orleans and uh, Mr. Daly of Chicago, stepping in with these lawsuits, trying to shake down the gun industry, and inventing all kinds of, you know, very wild, and uh, I guess the best way would be creative uh, claims with which to sue the gun industry, starting in late '98 and '99, and really trying to, to backdoor gun regulation. You know, I mean, the, uh, Mr. Herwitz is with a group. If I were in favor of gun control, I would I would join his group because I think it's the most intellectually honest and and, and forthright of of the anti-gun groups. And the right right way to pass gun laws is to pass them in legislatures, as as his side has done with great success in some places like New York or New Jersey or California, or with ballot issues, as they've had success with on on the gun show issue, even in in Colorado and, and Oregon. But what you shouldn't do is try to have what in effect they tried. Which no, not his side, but his group, but other groups, to have a, a single judge in a single state try to create a national gun policy and impose laws which have been rejected in Congress and in state legislatures. And the other fact is that the gun business, even though, you know, there's a lot of restaurants that make money from, or diners that make money from catering to hunters and all that, you could put the whole gun industry together, and you wouldn't have a Fortune 500 company. And so when you had this wave of dozens and dozens of suits, it was really a crippling effect on the on the industry. I mean, they, they spent over two hundred million dollars, more than their entire profits, uh, in a single year, defending themselves against these suits. And it wasn't that they were losing the lawsuits in court with jury verdicts or judges, but it, it's the it was a huge burden for an industry that's that's relatively small uh, to face. And that's why Congress stepped in, just as legislatures often step in when you have a particular business suffering from particularly burdensome abuse of the tort litigation process. In Colorado, we have a law that protects the ski industry. Um, You know, that wouldn't be necessary in some other places, but there were some abusive lawsuits that were really destroying our ski business, and Congress did the same kind of thing with the gun industry as Colorado did for the ski industry.
1: Joshua you've just received uh, your organization has just received a, a nice compliment uh, but I from what I've read on on your organization's website you take a, a different view of this law could you tell us uh, what your perspective is on this
3: Yeah well you know my my perspective is that um there, there are certainly a number of uh, cities who have filed suits, and, and I think that the courts are well-equipped to deal with them. Some of them have been dismissed. A few of them have survived. But uh, the, uh, the law also singles out individuals, uh, and in many of those 34 states uh, that Mr. Coppel mentioned, individuals were not included. Um, so we have an instance now where individuals who have been wronged by the actions of sellers, dealers, or manufacturers can't have their day in court. Um, I represent uh, a number of, of kids who were shot at the Jewish Community Center by a neo-Nazi um, who was armed, um, we believe, um, by with, the, with sort of with the, the tacit assistance of, of, of sellers. And we believe that, um, you know, in a situation where the... Sellers may have a role, in the, in the, and they should be responsible for their own negligence. We don't, we're not trying to excuse the criminal action of, the, of, this, of this Nazi, but we're also we also at the same time want to look at the actions of the sellers and distributors and manufacturers in that chain. And we believe that our clients, if we can show that they were they, that these these folks acted in a negligent way, should have their day in court. What I worry about is that I can see where where if it was the sole action of the of the criminal actor that you don't have a a, a cause of action, but we want to be able to examine the conduct of the sellers in in these marketing channels, and some of these marketing channels may include things like, um, you know, selling to people who you know will be making unregulated sales, uh, multiple sales. there are, you know, and there are, there are we, we think that the conduct of the, of the sellers and distributors and manufacturers should not be exempt from the law. And I think that trying to legislate for the whole country is very different than the Colorado ski industry. The Colorado ski industry says we have a local issue. That's one thing. But here Congress is not just saying you shan- shall not bring these in federal court. They're saying you shall not bring these in court. And we believe that our clients should have a, the opportunity to show that. Now, the Ninth Circuit has already said that our clients should be able to show that if they if they can show that, that they have a cause of action. The Supreme Court denied cert on that. We're back in the trial court, um, and there's many other cases. I mean, the, for instance, the D.C. Sniper case, where Bullseye Shooter Sport um, actually settled the case with plaintiffs here in D.C. and the their negligence was that they couldn't keep of their inventory. They allowed hundreds of guns to be stolen. And while while they may not be the sole cause of the sniper shooting or even the main cause under California law, uh, they should be held responsible for their actions, their contributions to the negligence. Now, um, that may not be the, the, the biggest part of the injury, but it seems uh, to turn tort law on its head to say we're going to exempt um, we're going to exempt these folks from being able to examine their own negligence, criminal activity. You know, there's there's many tort doctrines um, when we've all learned some of these cases in law school, where people contribute to a, a situation and sort of an omission that allows criminal activity to occur. I mean, for instance, you might have something like uh, neg- uh, premises liability, um, and we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, universally prohibit liability just because. A third-party actor committed the crime. We have to examine the other folks, and if they're responsible, which a court is—that's what courts do—they look at these things and determine whether these actors are negligent or not. They should be held responsible. A court can easily um, make these determinations. They're good at it. They've thrown some of these cases out. And David, I'm just going to—I'm just going to disagree with you on one point about the two hundred million dollars that's been bantered around a lot about the cost to the industry but of course we haven't seen any real figures and um, I, I I don't think it's I don't think it's been that much I know what I know what my side spent it's nothing like that so um, well I but think you, we but have your to side is on the
4: gets plaintiff's work from these companies that did the, the law firms that did the tobacco litigation which essentially do the whole thing you know for free expecting to Make money by either the publicity they get or the recoveries. I mean, it's your—you don't have to. Your side isn't paying people per dollar, you know, per per hour on a you know uh, a basis like defense well, firm. Well, it's let, me, let me just your bring your side right, represented heavily see, by actually, I just
3: don't think cities, we, which which have their lawyers who are you know municipal council who work you know essentially for free. Right.
1: Let me bring Eugene in Volok into cost. the conversation at this point. I, I I think we've lost Craig Williams. No, I'm or, back. Oh, you are back. Okay. Uh, Greg, do you uh, uh, want to pick up from here?
2: Well, I, I was interested in what, and I, I apologize if the question's already been asked because I'd been out of the conversation for a little bit, but I was going to ask the uh, Professor Balik what his thoughts were along the lines of tort reform. Well,
5: I think that this is a needed and valuable form of tort reform because it's special protection that uh, uh, is prompted by, uh, a special kinds of liability these the lawsuits here uh, ask for some remarkable stuff. the lawsuits that are being preempted let 's just give a little analogy let 's say that i uh, 'm um, uh, injured by somebody who turns out he 's a college student who was drunk, uh, and uh, I turn around and I sue not just the student, not even the bar, let's say, that sold him alcohol without carting him, uh, violated state liquor law. These same kinds of lawsuits would still be allowed under, this, under uh, the, uh, the, the federal bill we're talking about. But rather, I sue the alcohol manufacturer. And here's my theory. I sue Coors. My theory is that Coors has a marketing and distribution strategy that knowingly supplies to, to uh, 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 bars and to liquor stores that are near colleges and that Coors knows that some unknown fraction uh, of the alcohol ends up being illegally bought. So far, factually speaking, I think that's quite accurate. Any alcohol manufacturer that's remotely uh, honest with itself has to realize that some of uh, uh, its alcohol ends up being uh, sold illegally uh, to to underage buyers. But I sue the alcohol manufacturer on the theory that it ought to not just follow the law, uh, uh, but rather that it ought to somehow do something we 're not exactly sure what, but do something in order to keep uh, uh, to keep uh, uh, alcohol from getting in the hands of uh, uh, of underage uh, uh, drinkers, for example, and here it 's a very close analogy to what the uh, gun manufacturers are being asked to do uh, to cut off any bars that there 's reason to suspect might be violating the law, not have been proven to violate the law, but that there 's some reason to suspect that a disproportionate number uh, of uh, their patrons are underage. It seems to me that kind of lawsuit would be will be thrown out of court and should be thrown out of court out of hand, because clearly the alcohol manufacturer is not liable for the crimes of alcohol drinkers, and in a few situations, the crimes uh, of bars that sell the alcohol. Yeah, this is exactly the same kind of theory that's being used uh, uh, against the gun manufacturers. The theory that the manufacturers uh, should be liable, even if they've completely complied with all the many state and federal regulations uh, uh, that uh, they have to comply with, but that because some of their products end up... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, Um, being used unlawfully. Uh, What's more, more, the way these uh, lawsuits often work, and the California lawsuit uh, against Glock is an excellent example, is one state ends up imposing its uh, law on conduct in other states. You see, what happened in uh, the lawsuit against Glock is that Glock was sued in large part because it was uh, delivering supposedly too many guns to police departments in Washington state. Washington state has a relatively lax uh, uh, gun control regime compared to uh, California's regime. Uh, The Glock section was perfectly legal in Washington state. In fact, it was apparently much liked by the government, the police departments in Washington state. Glock thought for very good reason that what it was doing was perfectly proper, and yet then Ninth Circuit purporting to apply California law holds Glock liable for behavior that was perfectly legal and in fact governmentally authorized in the state of Washington. That's why it's necessary to have a national solution, a congressional uh, solution to this problem, because otherwise, what's happening is that uh, state courts and, in some situations, federal courts uh, 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 sitting as arbiters of state law are exporting these kinds of uh, novel and, I think, quite excessive uh, tort liability theories uh, uh, to other states, which are which are a lot more pro gone.
1: Well, is there precedent for exempting an industry from a, a formal liability lawsuit? Such uh, as there this is not done? just
5: precedent. There, there are there are dozens of such examples. So, uh, for instance. Uh, 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 the ERISA, the Employee Retirement and Income Security Act, uh, specifically preempts uh, uh, state laws uh, uh, that uh, touch on the regulation of, uh, uh, of employee benefits. And there's case after case of the Supreme Court reading that preemption provision very broadly, essentially making the regulation of employee benefits entirely a federal matter and free from both state both state legislation and state litigation. But, not now, The preemptive effect here is a lot weaker. The preemptive effect here is only of state lawsuits, not of of, 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 of uh, state legislative enactments. Uh, there are other examples. For example, uh, transportation, National Highway Transportation Safety Act has been read uh, uh, as preempting uh, lawsuits against car manufacturers based on the supposed failure to, uh, to um, uh, design pro- uh, cars to have um, uh, uh, airbags. But it still a provides case, a but, but,
1: judicial remedy.
3: I mean, that's I mean, the thing it in moves it from states?
1: one court to another.
5: Right. So I mean, no, uh, 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 some some uh, some of these laws uh, uh, move it uh, to federal court but also for applying federal law. ERISA for example does provide a remedy but it provides a much narrower remedy than Right. The well, states, well I think uh, the issue here is, to, is it, uh, no, and it, in it, fact it, the very, same thing is true with regard to the uh, to to the firearm liability. The firearm liability act allows it, it, certain kinds of uh, uh, remedies uh, it just uh, cuts out others which as I said are are quite rightly cut out but in any event this is an amply unprecedented matter that uh, uh, Congress sees particular problems in particular industries uh, and uh, uh, resolves those problems with
3: industry-specific selection. Professor,
1: let's hear from Josh. We've got a couple minutes before the break, and I want to let Josh get a word in on uh, this right. well, before I think, we go I, for the you break. Know,
3: I, 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 I appreciate this discussion because it's at a very good level, and it's, it's good, a good opportunity to talk about these things in a, in a, in a way that I think is meaningful, so I, I want to thank everybody for that. Um, I think there's a couple of um, things that are, are are different in this example. One is I think as far as the preemption, it seems to me more like some of these medical malpractice caps that have been found unconstitutional in the states because they cut off completely uh, the remedies. There's absolutely no alternative remedy, like, for instance, where a vaccine court says you can't sue in federal court for vaccines, you have to go to a special court. There's, that's, that's limited. The other thing is that my case, of course, has been going on for six years now, and under this law, require immediate dismissal, which makes it very hard to see if we fall under any of the exceptions that are in the law.
5: Well, the, the, qu- third, the case won't th- be th- dismissed th- th- if you fall th- within th- the exceptions.
3: Th- the third, the third thing um, would be that, of course, in your analogy, you said that the, um, you know, that the, the, that the dealers of the liquor were, were would still be eligible for liability that's not true in this case uh, it uh, extends to the uh, lo- sellers I, I want to bring in one point right? I disagree
0: with that actually decision? under but this
5: law uh, the dealers of firearms would be liable for
3: violation of state laws right but of Even course look a, this, what about that, uh, the underlying s- common law and that's uh, the issue here this is a co- we're talking two t- common law torts one's negligence and one's nuisance those have been you know nuisance goes right to the heart of a state's police power and those would be cut off well I'll bring back my
5: analogy. If somebody sues a bar, and the theory that the bar creates a nuisance, not because it fails to card people, it complies with that law, not because it serves people who are known to be drunk, it complies with that law, but because it doesn't act reasonably to try to to, uh, do whatever else it can to try to minimize alcohol-related crime and drunk driving, I think that kind of lawsuit would be dismissed and should be dismissed because
3: uh, we know what it is that bars are supposed to be doing. Here, for instance, we're not talking about... Some doing other things, maybe. We're talking about some very specific conduct. But and conduct
5: that is not mandated by state law. If a state but, really but thinks that's a we have all conduct, the time evidence not
3: mandated by the state law. It's the residual. Basis of common law and negligence torts. You know this as well as we do. We can, you can sue based on without a statute. That's called negligence per se. I'm talking about common law and negligence. And what this law does, it removes that. And I think the courts And,
5: and, and, it and quite are the, best, are the best places this to be able to this. And broad, and vague a set of possible liabilities that keep people from uh, selling perfectly lawful products and don't
4: I don't think we're, I don't don't we're, don't we're stopping them.
3: anybody from selling any products. I, think, Josh, I don't think you you there's any finding whatsoever that the farm industry report. has been armed here.
4: A law school textbook, Gun Control and Gun Rights. You've done an excellent job of presenting the, the pro-tort arguments. Eugene's got the, the anti-tort arguments. But there's, there's one thing that's missing from this discussion, in that, that both of you are making these very sincere arguments on, on tort law. And I agree, there's good, you know, in the abstract, there's good pro and con arguments on this. But the fact is, when these lawsuits were brought, you had Ed Rendell, the mayor of Philadelphia, who was one of the orchestrators of these, speak at the ABA On tape, when he says, what we did on this is we got the financial forms for the gun business, we figured out how much money they've got, and we're deliberately filing suit in multiple jurisdictions simultaneously and filing them in a way to make it nearly impossible to consolidate them so that they can't afford to defend the lawsuits. These aren't suits that are sincerely... The you may be involved tonight by grant you your sincerity, but these suits on the whole were never suits that were seriously intended to be brought to a judge, to a jury for a final resolution one way or the other. These were intended deliberately as abuse of the system to take an industry that can't afford to defend itself on 70 fronts at once and force it to concede before any case ever got to a jury. And that's why these were such extremely abusive tactics on the part, not of your group, well, but when the, when the me, Brady I campaign mean, when... which started this whole thing. Is that's being... why... Congress intervened, not because of the tort theory for which there's good arguments on both sides, but because of the really outrageous abuse of the tort process to try to win simply by imposing litigation costs and not by trying to sincerely win a case.
3: Well, you know, one thing is I never let Ed Rendell speak for me, so I want to make clear that that's not the way we look at these. And I have been counsel on some of these city suits. And, um, you know, the the courts, I thought, were very well able to dismiss the ones that they thought were not reasonable and the ones that they thought comported with state law. They were able to go Forward. Um, But the trouble
5: is that when uh, a, a court allows a state court lawsuit to go forward based on actions in a different state. But we all then, what, then, what, then what's we, we happening are, there we always... is that one state is exporting its uh, regulatory regime to another state. That's the problem but, that we saw but, in the in the Elito case and also that's why even if 49 states end up ruling against liability, the one remaining state may end up imposing a very uh, a uh, regulatory regime we, on but, the rest but of the country. But we always that's why we you need federal law
3: for, for torts that occur in other states. I mean the manufacturing process could be perfectly Non-negligent in Utah, and negligent in California. But if you bring your product into California, you're going to be sued.
0: Well, and, that, and that that's is a, that's the, a let problem with the liability
5: system
3: generally. Well. and that is a
5: problem that calls for a federal solution. All right, which but why the federal out federal government trading? provided here? Let me well, just so uh, interject for one cases.
1: minute here. That we need to, we just need to take a, a quick break, and then we'll come back to this conversation. Uh, so hold those thoughts.
0: We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our practice center sections. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800 317 5221. That's 800 317 5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Well, welcome
2: back to the Coast Coast show on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, and with me is Bob Ambrosi. We have, as our guests, Joshua Horowitz, David Kopel, and Professor Eugene Volokh, and we're talking about the protection of the Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, called the Gun Shield Law, recently signed into law by President Bush. We want to wrap it up with our final thoughts from our guests, and I want to throw a question at Professor Bollock, actually two questions, to kind of take off on Josh's point about the preemption of common law tort law and the extension of this law as perhaps uh, the sec- as part of the Second Amendment. How do you think, Professor Bollock, the Second Amendment plays into this and what's ultimately going to be a constitutional challenge to the preemption of, of state tort law? Uh, I think the
5: Second Amendment secures an individual constitutional right, and 44 of the 50 states have state constitutional amendments that also secure uh, uh, a right to bear arms, uh, and the uh, almost all of them, I think, can, can only be read as securing individual rights. At the same time, it's not clear to me, I'm genuinely unsure about it, it's not clear to me that uh, those amendments necessarily preempt all or even most kinds of firearms uh, uh, litigation. It's conceivable uh, uh, that uh, uh, that uh, even uh, under the right of bear, to bear arms, there would be considerable room for these kinds of lawsuits, now, my main objection to the lawsuits is not uh, uh, that, that they uh, violate the uh, constitutional right to bear arms it's that they impose uh, uh, ill defined uh, and often extraterritorial uh, uh, obligations on gun manufacturers that are far broader than obligations that we impose on car manufacturers or alcohol manufacturers uh, or, or what have you now in so far as the, um, as the propriety of this preemption, uh, Congress has the power to regulate commerce, which includes the power to deregulate commerce uh, and it has often uh, used it in order to preempt uh, uh, contrary state uh, tort law so i don't think there's any uh, any difficulty with that and it's true that it uh, this means that some people won't be able to get into court with their legal theories that's the nature of a of a legislature abrogating certain kinds of common law claims uh, this is a novel kind of common law claim that uh, uh, plaintiffs have been trying to uh, to to get recognized a few state courts have recognized it now the legislatures which they have the ultimate say on the shape of the tort liability system, say we think it's a mistake uh, uh, for uh, uh, for these to be uh, recognized, and that's very much within the federal legislature's power. Well, this
1: law not only pre- precludes future suits, but it actually uh, uh, it shuts down, I guess, uh, uh, about the half a dozen or so suits that are now yeah. pending in the courts, as I understand yeah, but, it. Uh, but,
5: well, whenever uh, – so the, uh, the basis for any suit that is pending is some substantive rule of law. Uh, uh, substantive rule of law can be foreclosed by uh, – uh, by a, uh, st- uh, a legislature, I believe. I'm not an expert on this particular corner of uh, of a federal due process law, but I believe that it, that uh, legislature is not allowed to go back and reopen an already final judgment. Uh, but if there's a case that's pending in court and the underlying substantive theory behind that case uh, uh, is uh, legislatively rejected, uh, whether that theory is alienation of affections uh, uh, or other such torts that have been uh, statutorily um, uh, repealed, or this kind of novel prime uh, manufacturer liability theory, then indeed those cases are thrown out of court. That's the standard way in which uh, the legislative uh,
3: process with regard to tort liability works.
1: But Joshua, what's the next step for the opponents of this law?
3: Well, obviously, we're going to argue that it's a take-in under the due process clause. I mean, we're—I—I I understand the professor's uh, arguments here, but we're—we're we're going to—we're going to argue argue vigorously so that we're losing a property right here. But I think there's a number of other challenges. I mean, I think there's a number of one on separation of powers. I think that the you know there's some factual findings about what the Second Amendment. Means here that I think is really what I look at is legislative adjudication. I think they're better that, that they're constitutional. Left to the courts, um, I would disagree. Also on the commerce clause, there's actually no findings under this about the commerce clause. There's some cursory language, but there's actually no indication that the that commerce has been affected in any way because of this law. So I'm gonna, we're obviously going to look at that. Um, there's a, of course, a federalism argument based on the on the on the taking of the common law torts. Um, argument. So I think we have some pretty good arguments here, uh, some pretty good constitutional arguments. And I also think there's a number of drafting errors in the bill, or drafting sort of confusions in the bill, like this immediate dismissal. I mean, there's some exceptions here. How do you know if you've qualifying the negligence per se if your case is immediately dismissed. The other thing is, of course, in my case, we have some foreign defendants who, under this law, this, this provides only for you know, people with federal firearms licensees. Some of our defendants don't have federal firearms licenses, and they've vigorously protect, protested jurisdiction because they don't so i don't think this law affects those uh, people at all so i think that we between our constitutional arguments and i think some of the just you know some of the i think that the drafting in this law that was very ambiguous and finally the legislative history which shows that that, that senators were very confused about this means. And time after time, senators went up to the floor and said, and, and House members said, oh, this won't affect private lawsuits. This won't affect that type of lawsuit. So I think that we're going to have some pretty strong arguments, you know, whether we get to make them in the trial court or the court of appeals will be yet to see. be seen. But I would anticipate that this will eventually get to the Supreme Court.
2: David, how do you feel this plays out on a public policy social perspective?
4: In In, in the practical terms of the gun issue, the majority of, of this country is, has the position that might be called pro-gun, pro-control, in that they think it's perfectly fine for you to have a gun in your house and, and to shoot a burglar if he comes in, and at the same time they also think, well, you know, if you you need to, you get your background checked when you go to buy a gun or in a gun store, you know, the same way you have an instant check on on your credit card. Well, what's the harm in that? And that's that's the consensus position. Although I realize there are, you know. Powerful ideological arguments on either side against that, and and one of the reasons that this did get passed in 34 states and got passed by a huge bipartisan majority in, in both houses of Congress is because the public sees this as an abuse of the tort system. That when you have somebody's injured with a gun, you know you, you sue the, the you sue the store, you sue the manufacturer. You know, yes, you can find examples where a, a, a store. You know, sold a gun to somebody who was drunk, which obviously they shouldn't, and is illegal in most states. But but to take the you know the, the Washington D.C. sniper case, and you see the the manufacturer of the rifle in Maine, you know that was eventually stolen from a gun store in Washington State and then used in gun crimes in Virginia and Washington D.C. I think that strikes a lot of people as as unfair and, and an abuse of the process. And, and Josh's argument that this is a violation, a separation of uh. Violates the principle of separation of powers. Um, I, I, I is has commendable hot spot to it because what this, this is is really an attempt to use the judiciary to create various gun laws for which there are pro and con arguments, but gun laws which have been rejected by Congress and by the vast majority of American states, and to try to, to backdoor the legislatures and, and impose them judicially.
1: Well, I saw a quote the other day from Wayne LaPierre, the uh, NRA executive vice president, that uh, lawmakers have learned that it's bad politics to be on the wrong side of the Second Amendment. Uh, Does this mean, uh, with this victory, does the NRA uh, have a, a, what's next on his legislative agenda?
4: Uh, The D.C. handgun ban, which Congress has plenary authority over Washington, D.C. And in our nation's own capital, not only you can't buy a handgun, you can't even have a shotgun or a rifle licensed and registered in your own home in a condition where you can use it for protection. You've got to have it disassembled. So f- fixing the extreme end of the D.C. handgun law which, and gun laws, which essentially prohibit defensive gun ownership, I think is probably the, uh, yeah. the
5: next thing you'll see uh, later on. Uh, let me mention something related to that. Uh, um, uh, some gun control groups say, look, we're not in favor of gun bans. We're not, no, they sometimes say nobody is trying to take away your guns. We just want modest gun controls. Uh, and what I would like to invite them, those groups to do is to sign on to the call for the repeal of the uh, D.C. Uh, gun ban. It really is a gun ban. It does ban all uh, handguns except a few that have been grandfathered in. It does bar people from uh, keeping... Right rifles, and shotguns ready to be used for self-defense, uh, in our nation's capital, we do have a situation where the law is taking away people's ability to use their guns. Uh, so either it seems to me gun control groups ought to, uh, uh, ought to acknowledge that this is going too far. and It isn't just gun control with gun prohibition. Or I think we have to recognize that gun control groups are endorsing prohibition and not just calling for kind of modest, uh, uh, moderate steps.
3: I can't respond to that. Just one last thing there. I mean, I think what we're endorsing here is the self-determination of people in D.C. to make their own laws like any other state legislature. And, of course, I understand the congressional power here, but we've had this ban on the, on the books for over twenty, over you know, now 30 years, and the people of District Columbia want it.
5: But pro-gun control groups that are headquartered in Washington are certainly quite happy to go into other states and try to lobby for uh, the enactment of broader gun controls. When
4: you passed uh, the Brady Bill and the assault weapons law, you, nationally, those groups took away the self-determination exactly. of the majority of states, including Colorado, which had voted against law. I, I think
1: it's only fair, uh, being uh, outnumbered two to one, that we give Joshua the final word here, and then we're going to uh, wrap up. Up. Well, Joshua. I would just say
3: that all the public safety and law enforcement officials in the District of Columbia like the law, want to keep it keep it the way it is, which allows what does allow limited gun ownership, um, but gun ownership nonetheless. And I think that the, for the public safety of people of of DC and for their own self determination, I think it's an important precedent.
1: Well, thank you very much to uh, our guests Joshua Horowitz, David Copel, and Eugene Volok for joining us today. Thanks a lot for your time.
3: Thank you. Thank, thank, you, thank you for having us.
1: And Craig, uh, uh, we uh, saw Harriet Myers uh, step down today. That seems to be the buzz on the blogosphere. Any thoughts yeah, I, on that? I
2: wanted to check Bob to see if we still have Professor Bullock on the line.
1: We do, I think, um,
2: because Harriet Myers' nomi- or withdrawal of, of her nomination is something I wanted to toss at Professor Bullock since he he kind of serves a dual purpose on this one. We,
1: we don't have him, I guess, Craig.
2: Oh, he disappeared. Well, I was interested to find out who was on his short list for the next nomination. So, Bob, I'll toss that question to you. Well,
1: who I do you... don't know. I'm not sure. I, I I was actually surprised, maybe one of the few people who was surprised that, that Myers withdrew. I, I guess uh, the president found himself between a rock and a hard place with this nominee, uh, and uh, I'm not sure. I,
2: uh, you think the next nominee is going to be more conservative to satisfy the people that apparently uh, forced her withdrawal?
1: Well, I think that's it, and I wonder whether he's going to turn now to somebody who's on the bench. Uh, that seemed to be, uh, you know, the, the lack of a, a track record was obviously an issue.
2: Yeah, the uh, Los Angeles uh, Daily Journal today uh, came uh, in a in a column on the in the front on the front page, called her a barweenie. and uh, it seems to me that uh, the call is out for someone with some judicial experience and perhaps uh, someone a little bit more conservative.
1: That's right. I mean, you know, it, obviously there's been plenty of uh, lots of uh, nominees that we've discussed before in this program who had no judicial experience. Uh, even you know, Clarence Thomas was only on the bench for a year before he was put on the Supreme Court, and others had come right out of practice. But uh, that was uh, a disability in this case.
2: It really was. And so I think that uh, perhaps after we get the next nomination, it'll be something that we have on a future show. But um, I think. At this point, uh, we're going to call it a wrap, and uh, I think the guests we had today were pretty phenomenal in this discussion.
1: It was a great program, and uh, look forward to hearing it and look forward to talking to you next week, Craig. Great. Thanks, Bob.
0: Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Jake Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.